This is a recording being made in the chapel of the open book of a series of studies entitled Christian Fundamentals. And this evening we are dealing with the evidence of prophecy to the inspiration of scripture. Those of you who are listening to this recording may care to join us as we read together Matthew 24. Quite apart from the wonderful subject of this Matthew 24, you notice the ring of assurance and certainty with which our Lord speaks. They uh, drew his attention to the building of the temple. And he said, the time was coming when there should not be left one stone upon another. Well, that was a statement that was either true or false. But everybody who knows anything about history knows that it was absolutely, completely and literally fulfilled. If you want to see one of the stones that was in that temple, you can go round at the back of St. Paul's Cathedral and look at it. There was not one stone left upon another. It was burned down, destroyed, a plough over its site as a symbol that Israel had rejected their Messiah and were in their turn rejected by him. And then after going through many things, committing himself to a tremendous amount of detail that is yet to be, he said, Behold, I have told you before. He doesn't minimise and say, Of course, this is a rather an inspired guess on my part. He commits himself to stage after stage, point after point, right through, and this 1900 years ago, and is speaking with absolute certainty and assurance. And then when it's all over, urges them to watch, therefore. Now, of course, anybody can speak with assurance, but they may not always be true. But as we examine the words of Christ, and as we see one point after another being fulfilled, literally, as he said, we begin to realise that this question of prophecy is of itself a wonderful evidence of the superintendence of God in the recording and preserving of his word. Now this evening I hope that this chart which is hanging in front of you won't mislead you, because I'm not intending to go into the vision of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel the second chapter intimately, because I should have as much as I could possibly do to do justice to that one chapter. I'm just giving it as a sample only of a series of approaches to show how this very spirit of prophecy which runs through the book is of itself an adequate testimony that God himself has spoken. You haven't got to read more than two chapters and a half in the book of Genesis to get the germ of all prophecy. I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. And then the bruising of the heel and the bruising of the head. And that goes on developing detail after detail added until we get the prospect in Romans the 16th chapter the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly showing that there is a, un there is a uniting together of the chosen seed and the one who is the true seed of the woman. Now the first thing I would like to do is to turn to one or two passages 
in the Old Testament and particularly in the prophecy of Isaiah just to see how God himself looks upon this question of prophecy or speaking in advance. Of course I know uh, that the word prophecy does not necessarily mean always to foretell an event that's coming in the future. It sometimes means to stand up before men and tell them what's going to take place immediately. Uh, but generally, the idea of prophecy in the scripture is to speak of things to come. Now, will you look at uh, Isaiah chapter 41? Isaiah chapter 41. And um, we'll look at verse 22 and 23 and 26. Isaiah 41, 22. Let them bring them forth and show us what shall happen. Well, there's a chance for most people to endeavour to become little prophets and show us what shall happen. And if it's only one statement, well, it's always 50-50 that by sheer accident it will take place. But if you multiply things that are going to happen, every time you put another one in, you're not merely adding just number one, you're, it's getting astronomical. By the time you get a dozen prophecies all focused upon one person, the possibilities that they'll all take place at the precise moment uh, is practically to reach the sphere of the impossible, apart from superintendence by God. Let them bring them forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare us things for to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that ye are gods. Yea, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Verse 26. Who hath declared from the beginning that we may know, and before time that we may say he is righteous? Yea, there is none that showeth, Yea, there is none that declareth. Yea, there is none that heareth your words. Well, these are the words of God through the mouthpiece of Isaiah, challenging the false prophets and the false gods. And God is practically saying, the sheer fact that I can show you things to come is an evidence that I am God. Well, let's look at another passage, chapter 43, or 42. Verse 9. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Because it's easy to be a prophet after the event. God says, I tell you a long time before. And then again, in chapter uh, 43, verse 9. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is truth. And then you get instances of peculiar and personal um, uh, prophecies. You, you get a prophecy concerning Cyrus. Uh, if you look at the end of chapter 44, Verse 28, that Seth of Cyrus 
He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings and open before him the two lead gates and the gate shall not be shut. Verse 4 For Jacob my servant, Satan Israel my elect, I have even called thee by thy name, I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am the Lord. Here's, here's a, a committal Isaiah puts in his prophecy that a man named Cyrus is yet to be a king and is going to be used by God to rebuild the temple and open and, and Jerusalem. And it says there, I have surnamed thee before thou knowest me. Can you understand the effect that would have upon Cyrus when his attention was drawn to it? It was Cyrus who made the decree that sent Nehemiah back to rebuild Jerusalem. So you see, it had practical effect in the very days. Well, how much more than when God speaks of the yet future that no one can envisage? So we have got, we've got this evidence, I believe, that running through the scripture, the fact of prophecy, the fact of foretelling what shall come to pass, is a sheer evidence that this book must come from God. As I say, it's easy for any of us to forecast a little, and by sheer accident some of the things will take place. But you cannot get a book of this bulk with all the ramifications and all the subjects dealing with individuals and with nations and with Christ himself in particular without realising and bowing the presence of the Spirit of God that laid hold upon these human mouthpieces and made them speak words of inspired truth. Well now, where shall we begin or where shall we end? Take for instance the prophecy that starts with the call of Abraham in Genesis the 12th chapter. Let's look at the way in which God spoke and committed himself. Of course, from our point of view, we are so accustomed to the fact that all through the Old Testament scriptures, the people of Israel are recognised as the chosen nation, that Palestine is the holy land, that Jerusalem was the chosen city, that we forget that it was all crammed into a few verses before ever there was an Israelite born. Abraham was not a Jew. Abraham was a Gentile. He lived in Ur of the Chaldees. And he was called out, and God gave him a promise that he would make of him a nation. That is to say, the people of Israel were an artificial nation. They didn't develop like the rest of the nations. Here was a special nation made by promise. Now this is the way in which it is worded. Genesis 12. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. Well now you stop there. Did God make of Abraham a great nation? Well, the rest of the book goes on to tell you that nation, and whether they were great in number, as compared with other nations, is not the point. They were a tremendously great nation in the working out of the purpose of God for one of the climax things that are said of them, and from their mass concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. If that doesn't make a nation great, what does? 
And yet this was said before there was a single Israelite born. And I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And it's rather noteworthy that two different words are used here for the one word curse. It says, and I will curse him that maketh light of thee. So go easy when you make a little joke about the poor little old Jew today. He may not be a very nice person just now. He's in the dark and he's in unbelief. He's been punished severely for his disobedience and his repentance, his unrepentance. But God says, he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. They are elect people and one day they're going to be cleansed. One day they're going to be born again. One day they're going to become a kingdom of priests and through them God will teach and train the surrounding nations of the earth as they've never been taught before. But this is all in anticipation. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Well then in association with that we have um, in verse 7, And the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And all the way through these promises, the people and the land go together. And then, strangely enough, these people leave the land and go down into Egypt. But they were told so by God in Genesis 15. Will you look? Verse 13, Genesis 15. And he said unto Abraham, Know of a surety, that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. So even the fact that they went down to Egypt and were submitted to that bondage which caused them to sigh and to cry and needed a deliverance by God to bring them out, it was all known beforehand and told to Abraham. So you see, every page almost, God has committed himself to saying things that might or might not happen. But there's never an instance in the whole word of God where the time has come and God has failed. When I say this, and you must say it too, if that is true, then we have every warrant to believe that when the other times come, God will keep his word to the letter as he has already done. Well now, if you were to follow out this story of the people of Israel, which we cannot do this evening, you would find some extraordinary things about them. They were chosen to be a blessing. They were given laws, as God said, such as no other country or nation ever received. They were under his particular care. They were a theocracy. They dwelt in that special land. They were safeguarded by God's promises. Their very harvests were guaranteed to enable them to keep a Sabbath year. They had every evidence that they were under the care of God. And yet, they're distinctly told in the very books that Israel have preserved against themselves that when their Messiah came, they were going to despise him and reject him and see no beauty in him and turn away from him. The very things that you think were contrary all came to pass. As the New Testament said, they fulfilled the very scriptures by their disobedience to them. You can't take God unaware. You never find that the Holy One of Israel is asleep. And as it says, he knew the end from the beginning. And so he could make all his plans and purposes. And we enter into blessing because of that. 
He who knew that Israel would not repent when their Messiah came. He who knew that that kingdom purpose of his would be suspended for a period. He planned beforehand to give you and to give me a wonderful opportunity of believing a truth that otherwise would never have been made known. And so we can trust in the living God to overrule all circumstances and bring his purposes to pass in his own good time and way. Well now let's look at a few outstanding features with regard to, say, the coming of Christ. I turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, to notice this one feature. It starts, Mark's Gospel, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written. Straight off, you see. The beginning of the Gospel... But what, what was written, not what Jesus Christ said, but what an Old Testament prophet said, Isaiah, some centuries earlier. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which will prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ going back, say, 300 or 400 years to what Isaiah had said beforehand. Well then, in the, the uh, 14th verse of the same chapter, 14th and 15th verse, now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The very first thing that he uttered according to Mark's gospel is, the fulfilment of some time or the other. Well, it doesn't explain it here. But if you know the prophecies, you know that there is one great outstanding prophecy in the book of Daniel, which by careful computation, you discover, leads to the very period when Christ was born and when he commenced his ministry. Now, Daniel, the ninth chapter, is not something to just throw in as a make-weight. It's a passage that needs most careful consideration. I don't think I've ever spoken at a more difficult meeting than I did many years ago at Neuchatel in Switzerland when I turned up at a little meeting there to discover that nobody could speak English and the subject they were dealing with was Daniel the ninth chapter. It was bad enough to deal with with people who could speak English who can't make yourself understood so what I made out of it, I'm sure I don't know, and I don't think they did. But we're not up against that just now. I'm not dealing with the details of the 70 weeks. All that I will say now without proof is that the angel came to Daniel and said, in a period of 490 years, the whole of God's purpose with regard to Israel shall be fulfilled. And in that period, at that certain mark, which he gives him, Messiah shall be cut off and have nothing. So Daniel was inspired to record that when Messiah first came, he wouldn't be crowned as king. He would be cut off. I could always remember, right back in my early days, I spoke at an open-air meeting here in the back of Petticoat Lane, and I was challenged by a Jew in the meeting, because a lot of Jews were standing round. He said, that's in your Protestant Bible. Oh, I said, it's in my Bible right enough. I said, because I'm only just beginning to 
figure out your language, but I base all I believe on what your Bible says. Do you? Yes. I said, have you got a Hebrew Bible? He said, yes. I said, where is it? He said, I got it at home. I said, how long will it take you to bring it? Five minutes. So I said to the crowd, shall we wait? Of course they would. And sure enough, he came back with a Bible nearly as big as himself, an old big Bible. And he found the place where it was written, Daniel the ninth chapter. I said, now read that particular verse in your Bible, will you? To the people. And he looked at it and he said, now I'm speaking from memory, Yakoresh Mishiach, the aim low. Mashiach, that's the Messiah. We soften the word, you see. Mashiach. And he looked at me and he said, I've never read that before. Well, I said, as long as you allow your rabbi to tell you never to read any of these prophecies that point to the coming of Messiah, you never will. That's the position, you see. Eyes darkened and turned away. But yet it says Messiah should be cut off at that period. Then there's going to be a break and when the last of the period comes, the book of the Revelation fills a story and Daniel and the Revelation are found to be two parts of one great whole. I've got some temerity, haven't I, to cram the whole of Daniel and the whole of Revelation in about five minutes. But still, I'm only lifting these things out, assuming that you know something about it, to say, don't you see, a book that contains statements like that is either absurdly false or is most miraculously true. And here they are, all lining up together, as God says, no one statement will ever miss its mate than all the as it says, fulfilment of prophecy. The moment you open the Gospel according to Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, the moment you open it, you read the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, all the names of the Old Testament, that it might be fulfilled that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, and there you've got it. Straight away. Next chapter, something else, that it might be fulfilled. All the way through. And then our Lord's own statement in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, that no heaven and earth should pass away, not one jot or tittle of the law should pass without it being fulfilled. And so we've got his testimony that the word was true from the beginning and God was standing behind it to bring it to pass. Well now, not only the, the um, time when the Messiah should come is a part of Scripture, but if you turn back to Matthew's Gospel... Uh, the fourth chapter. Uh, the second chapter, I'm sorry. You'll find that the place was indicated long before. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold there came wise men from the east of Jerusalem saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Well, they didn't say, well, how shall we know? You're asking us an impossible question. They said unto him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written in the prophet." And it looks as though they never went home to find out. They knew enough to quote it. They misquoted it a little bit. But they said, oh, it's written in the prophet. He must be born in Bethlehem. And then the prophecy is quoted. And thou, Bethlehem, 
in the land of Judah art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come forth a governor that shall rule my people Israel. They missed out the bit. Out of thee shall come a, a governor whose goings forth have been from everlasting. They didn't perhaps like to say that. But that was what Micah said. But the point is that Micah said that this one is going to be born in Bethlehem. And our Saviour was born in Bethlehem. Daniel the ninth chapter says he'll come at that time and Christ started his ministry saying the time is fulfilled. Time and place. Now they're the two things that make up an event. Because nothing can ever happen in our experience that doesn't happen at some time somewhere. And there you get the time and the place. Now if time and place adhere, to quote Shakespeare, if time and place adhere in all these statements of prophecy, what a testimony we have to the veracity of the word of God. He never slips. He never puts the right time in the wrong place, because that's easy enough. Christ wasn't born in Nazareth. He went to live at Nazareth, and so it says in verse 23, he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he should be called a Nazarene. No slip up. He wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in the royal city of David, but he lived in the poverty-stricken city or village of Nazareth. For it was written, he was despised and rejected, and no beauty in him that we should desire him. And so the story goes on. Not only his birth, but his earthly life, his miracles, his opening his mouth in speaking in parables, and then you think of the, the regard of our Lord as he drew near to the end of his days. He said, it's written of me, he was numbered with the transgressors. He said to his disciples, the Son of Man must go up to Jerusalem, he must be taken by the chief priests, he must be scourged, he must be crucified, he must be raised again the third day, he committed himself to it all. Never a slip, never a hesitation. So this is the testimony of prophecy. We can begin to open this book and we, without hesitation, should be able to say, Thus saith the Lord. For these things are either true or false. And nobody has yet put their finger on any piece of it yet and said, Now that was a mistake, that was a slip up, that's false. For as the time has come, so the prophecy was fulfilled to the very letter. And then you remember that this one that came into the world was no ordinary person. We are told in chapter 1, verse 22, now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So the very character of the birth of Christ, which gave him a real, literal body of flesh and blood, but did not connect him with the fall of Adam, for all the way through the Old Testament, the entail of sin and death comes through the man, not through the woman. And so our Saviour could be born of a woman and yet have no complicity, no taint with regard to the fall of man. And so we have, over and over again, the various testimonies concerning the Messiah. What shall we say about Isaiah 53? Let's look at it, shall we? Although again, it seems almost uh, unpardonable. If I cram the prophecy of Daniel in the book of Revelation in five minutes, I wonder what we can do with Isaiah 53. 
But just look at it. But whenever you start reading Isaiah 53, do remember that all the chapters and verses are very convenient for reference, but sometimes they're not quite true. That is to say, Isaiah 53 commences a few verses back in Isaiah 52. That sounds a bit Irish, I know. But look, this is where it starts. Verse 13, 52. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. I, I always notice that this passage, it doesn't merely say he shall be exalted. That would be wonderful enough, wouldn't it? It doesn't say he shall be extolled. Or it doesn't say he shall be very high. God goes out of his way to say it three ways round so that we shall not miss this exalted son of God. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. But as many as were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men, so shall he, revised version, startle many nations, not sprinkle them. Look, they were astonished in verse 14, they were startled in verse 15, that's the parallel. They were astonished at his uh, visage being more marred than any man, they shall be startled at his exaltation and the glory that attaches to him. Now he comes in chapter 53, who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed for, he shall grow up before him as a tent of plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and where we shall see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. All this pointing to the way in which they treated the Messiah when he came. Although he was born at Bethlehem, although he came at the right time, although he did the right things and said the right things, he was despised and rejected. It's a certain amount of consolation when people call us names and turn away from us and discredit what we say because most of the time we merit what they say. But this one, look how they treated him. Now, verse 4 should be read as a prophetic utterance of what the people of Israel are going to say when they look upon him whom they pierced. The prophet Zechariah says one day, the Lord says, they shall look upon me whom they pierced, said the Lord. And this is what they will say when they do it. Surely, you imagine the, you imagine the words being said for the first time to one another. Two or three Jews meeting together at this moment of time which is coming. Up till then, repudiating Jesus of Nazareth as they do. But they look at one another and they say, surely, he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. What a difference there is in reading it. Instead of just giving it an intonation, you've missed the point. Oh, this is a startling thing. It says they're going to be startled. This is a wondrous thing. Look at the way we treated him. And this was what was happening. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And then it goes on with other things. Take, for instance, verse 9. And I'll give you the specific words. He made his grave with the wicked ones, plural, and with the rich one, singular, in his death. Christ was crucified between two malefactors and buried in a rich man's tomb. 
Even the words are not out of place. It says both. And then we have the words in verse 12, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This is coming back to the beginning when kings shall shut their mouths at him and wonder at his exaltation because he hath poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now I speak from memory but I believe there are seven times in the New Testament where Isaiah 53 is quoted. All these bits are lifted out and quoted of him as time went on. His earthly life and his wondrous death and his resurrection. Well now, just for a moment, as I've got this exhibition on the board, this chart, we'll turn to Daniel, the second chapter, uh, but not to expect more than a casual reference. Daniel, the second chapter. Most of you know that Daniel was taken captive and was specially set apart and trained with one or two others at the order of King Nebuchadnezzar. And in the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar, he dreamed a dream, and he was troubled by what he dreamed. And in verse 4, our version reads, Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac. Well, as the word Syriac is the word Chaldean, you would imagine that any Chaldean would speak in Chaldean, wouldn't you? It's like saying, then spoke the Englishman in English. But that's not exactly what is meant. Because the language changes in verse 4. It changes from Hebrew to Syriac. It's warning you that a little change is taking place in the language of the book. Up till now, you've been reading Hebrew. Now, it's going to change to the Gentile language, the Syriac. And it goes on to the end of chapter 7 and it goes back to the Hebrew again. So God himself has used two languages in the book of Daniel because Daniel particularly envisages the Gentile world, you see. Now, the king, apparently, I'm not sure whether he actually really did forget his dream or whether he politically said, I don't remember it. And because he says, you know, he says, I know what you're doing. You're wanting to save time. These astrologers and all these others who were forecasters and prognosticators and whatnot, they said, if you'll only tell us the dream, King Nebuchadnezzar, we'll tell you the meaning. And I imagine he said, I know you will. I mean, if I'd been in their shoes, I'd have told you the meaning because I should have lost my head if I didn't. But they said, you've given us nothing to work on. And the more they said that, the more the wonder was that Daniel was prepared to go into the presence of the king and say, there's a God in heaven that reveals secrets, O king. I'll tell you what you dreamed, first of all. You can imagine this consternation of Nebuchadnezzar hearing this dream brought out before him. Any man who can do that will tell you what it means. And he said, you were worried. I know what was in your mind, King Nebuchadnezzar. You were worried as to what was going to happen hereafter. When you're dead and buried, who's going to carry on? What's going to happen to this great kingdom that you've built up? Well, he said, I'll tell you. That you are that head of gold that you saw, this peculiar uh, figure. You are that head of gold. And he was an absolute monarch. It says, whom he would he slew, whom he would he kept alive. 
But he says, you're going to be succeeded by a lesser sort of kingdom. And it was a double one. The kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. You see, there's the arms and the breast of the figure. And that was silver instead of gold. Now, the Medes and the Persians were not an absolute monarchy. Because when the courtiers came and, and spoke to the king of Persia, uh, they engineered it that Daniel should be put in the lion's den. Although the king spent half the night worrying himself because he put him in the den. So, there's the degeneration. Afterwards, you're going to be succeeded by another kingdom. And that is the brass one. Now, in the book of Daniel, you, you've got Babylon, and you've got, you've got Persia, and you've got Greece, all said, the names are given there, 300 years before the time. So if we never go any further, Daniel said, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to be succeeded by the Medes and the Persians, and the Medes and the Persians are going to be succeeded by Alexander the Great, the Macedonian. Because if you read in the subsequent chapters, instead of saying silver and brass, it says Persia and Greece. Well, then why doesn't it say Rome? Well, if we had been writing the story and didn't know that when Christ actually came, they would reject him, we'd have gone and committed ourselves and said, Rome is the last one, Christ comes when Rome is here, that's the end. But God knew the end from the beginning. So he doesn't say Rome. He simply says another kingdom, an iron one. And he doesn't tell you its name. And it goes into a sort of, you see that little fuzzy bit at the bottom? The length of time is disproportionate. There's something gone wrong with that image because if you were to take a square sheet of paper and you put the head of the figure there and then you have the, the body there like that, then you have legs down here somewhere, like that you see, because there's something that takes place and that's where we are. 1900 years already and more in between not accounting for. Now, that was envisaged by this story. So you get, uh, I think we'll let um, Daniel now say a word or two with regard to this image. Verse 31, Daniel 2. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold a great image. And this great image whose brightness was excellent stood before thee and the form thereof was terrible. And he tells him what he saw. And at the finish, verse 35, Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver and the gold broken to pieces together and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors and the stone which struck it filled the earth and became a great kingdom. Then he says, Thou art the king of kings, thou art the head of gold and after thee you have to read the rest of the chapter. Well, now we come to the New Testament for a moment. Um, no, not to the New Testament. I want, first of all, to come to one or two outstanding features with regard to the commission of these men. Once more, I shall not be able to get in. I don't uh, think all the points that I wanted, but we never do. The Word of God beats us nearly every time. Jeremiah, the first chapter... reads like this. Verse 
when Jeremiah objected and said he was but a child and he couldn't speak, the Lord said in verse 7, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have this day set thee over nations and over kingdoms, to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build and to plant. Well, Jeremiah didn't dig up any cities, he didn't overthrow them. But what he said was they would be. And his word was practically like the deed. Now, one more piece in this chapter. It says, um, in verse um, 11, Moreover the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then said the Lord unto me, Thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. Now, before we comment on that, would you turn a little further along in the prophecy of Jeremiah? to chapter 31, verse 28. Jeremiah 31, verse 28. And it shall come to pass that like as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down, to throw down, to destroy and to afflict, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, saith the Lord. So you can see there's an echo, this peculiar string of words, to break down, pluck up and throw down. But now what's that got to do with this almond tree? Well, the almond tree is called in the Hebrew language the watcher tree because it comes so very early as a harbinger of spring. My attention was drawn through our kitchen window to the tree in somebody else's garden. We guessed it was a cherry. But as a possibility it was an almond or one or the other. It comes very early. And God said to Jeremiah, what have you seen, Jeremiah? He said, I've seen the rod of a watcher tree. So will I watch over my word, not hasten. So will I watch over my word to perform it. And he says, it shall come to pass that like as I have watched over them, so will I watch over. That's the point. God says, I'm watching over this word. I say a thing's going to happen. I don't leave it to chance. I watch over it. So that's another point, you see. It's the very providence of God is under his care and he's connected with the same that inspires the scriptures. Well now, if we look at um, one or two just in the New Testament, I think we shall have to accept the limitations of our time. You see, these these, um, reels that are on the tape recording are not like the old days in the Puritans when they had an hourglass when he got stuck, he turned it upside down and they had another hour. But you see, that goes to its limit and finishes. Now, the third chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. The third chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. Verse 22. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. 
So you see, there's no possibility of saying that the mere fulfilment of prophecy was just one of those nice little subjects that you could have as an argument. It was bearing upon the whole nation and their destiny. If you will not hear this prophet, of whom Moses was a sample and a picture, that, that person, that one, shall be destroyed from among the people. Ye are the children of the prophets, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first, God having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, turning away every one of you from his iniquities. He's going back to the promise that God made that this people should be a chosen nation and through them blessing should go out to others. He's telling them their destiny is already there in the very prophecies of the Old Testament and woe unto them if they turn aside in any measure from what God has intended. We uh, looked at Matthew 24. I'll just finish in by a, a quotation from Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, first few verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it, or he sent and made it a series of signs, that's the word signify if you want it, by his angel unto his servant John who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear. You notice the word was expected to be read in public and uh, one person reading it, a lot of people hearing it. Today, of course, we could all read, thank God, but they couldn't always. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. And so we have the very last book in the Bible is called This Prophecy. And the things there were shortly to come to pass. And there's a wonderful set of detailed statements, certainly in symbolic language, uh, but when you've got the key to them, you can begin to realise that the days to which we are fast approaching have been already indicated in the book. No surprise need take the child of God if he has this book as his guide. In fact, you can anticipate what you're going to see in the newspapers in a few weeks' time, many times, as you see the movements taking place in the nations in the Middle East. For what's happening out there is the nations are being gathered together again to take the position they had before Israel rejected their Messiah and lost temporarily the kingdom. It's all coming back again. And if that is the case, our period is running out. I'm not going to say I'm no prophet. I don't know a word about it except I can see. We haven't got a great deal of time left, possibly, to make known this marvellous truth of the mystery and to call those that God has chosen to a knowledge of their position. So let us then remember that our epistle tells us to redeem the time, knowing that the days are evil. So may the Lord give us, we, we pray, a consciousness that he has embedded in the scriptures so much evidence by this prophetic aspect. He's committed it to so much that if he should turn out to be wrong, the whole thing would fall to pieces. But the more you study it, the more you become conscious that the God who indicted it is the God who claims to know the end from the beginning 
He can see what is going to take place before the time. He can commit himself to time and place and person and opportunity. He can put it down in plain or cryptic language, but when the moment comes, we have to say like the scripture says of old, what he said with his mouth, he has performed with his hand as it is at this day. They've said that in days gone by. When the whole has reached its zenith. And that zenith, of course, is, so far as we are concerned, one aspect or another of the second coming of Christ, whether on the Mount of Olives, whether in the air, or whether manifested in glory, for the different companies and callings are all waiting for that blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. I commend this then to you as another one of the many testimonies that we can find that the Word of God has been given by inspiration. And Peter, you remember in his second epistle, says, No prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, that's quite useful, but that isn't what he said. No prophecy of the scripture is of its own unfolding. For holy men of old spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It didn't come into their hearts and minds by pondering and thinking. It was given to them. And so we take our stand there. Just as Peter also said that these Old Testament prophets, they searched what they themselves had written searching what, all, what manner of time the Spirit of Christ that was in them when it did signify the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow. So if the prophets themselves search their own writings, how much more should we diligently seek them to, to get, as it were, some knowledge of the purpose and the outworking of, of the purpose of grace of our God.